Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and I want to thank you all for joining me today to talk all about ACL rehab and research. And on today's episode, I interview my friend and past podcast guest, Dr. Perf- Dr. and Professor Evangelos Pappas. Uh, Evangelos trained as a physiotherapist in Greece. I'm not even going to try and attempt to say the name of the town in Greece because I will undoubtedly butcher the name. Uh, Before pursuing a master's in orthopedic physical therapy at Quinnipiac University and a PhD in orthopedic biomechanics at New York University, right here in uh, New York City. And he taught for 11 years at Long Island University Brooklyn campus in kinesiology, clinical decision-making, and musculoskeletal pathology and physiotherapy. His excellence in teaching was recognized by his nomination for the Newton Award for Excellence in Teaching, and he is now at the University of Sydney as a senior lecturer, where he continues to lecture in the areas of musculoskeletal physiotherapy, and particularly as it relates to the upper and lower extremities. He is also an active musculoskeletal research with uh, grants from the NIH, among others, and he's presented his work in more than 50 national and international conferences, and he has been published in tons of journals, and we actually uh, linked to some of those publications in the show notes, so you can hop over to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com and get some of those publications. And he has also served on the research subcommittee of the awards committee for the American Physical Therapy Association. So what do we talk about in this episode? We talk about biomechanical deficits that predispose athletes to ACL injury. We talk about treatment interventions and screening assessments for return to sport that can reduce the likelihood of re-injury, training programs on ACL prevention, wearable technologies impact on ACL injury statistics, and so, so, so much more. It was so great to have Evangelos back on the show. He and I used to work together here in New York City, so it's always great to catch up with him and chat. And uh, I want to thank him so much for sharing all of this great information on ACL rehab and research. And we'll get to that right after I thank audible.com for sponsoring this episode. So if you want a free month and a free download, go to audibletrial.com slash healthy, wealthy, smart, and you can choose from over 180,000 titles. and anything you can imagine, they probably have it. So hop over to audibletrial.com slash healthywealthysmart for your free download and a free month. No obligation. Okay, so thanks again to Audible and a huge thanks to Dr. Pappas for coming back on the program to talk all about ACL research and rehab. Hey, Evangelos, welcome back to the show. Happy to have you as always. It is my pleasure to be here, Karen. And so, like I said in the intro, today we're going to be talking all about ACL injury and management. But before we get into that, I would love for you to let the listeners know where your interest in ACL injuries and research came from. Well, it originally started when I was doing my bachelor's degree and uh, just happened to have very good teachers uh, who kind of directed me in in the direction of knee injuries. Um, What really attracted me about the knees was that it's a very complex joint and the ACL injuries, it it seems like a quite random injury. So an athlete can suffer this injury uh, performing a task that he or she has performed 
literally thousands of times. And then this one time, it just happens that they hear a pop in their knee, their knee becomes immediately unstable and, you know, they are out for six months. And it is in, in some ways, as we will discuss, a life-changing event, uh, an ACL tear. Um, so, since, you know, since I was in uh, doing my undergraduate in uh, physical therapy, um, I did a small research project related to the knee towards the end of my studies. Um, and that was in Greece. Then I moved to the United States and I did my master's at Quinnipiac University, uh, where I had the chance to do a little bit more research related to ACLs and biomechanics. Uh, and then I did my PhD at New York University uh, with Margaret Nordin and Alice Shikshadev. Uh, and uh, I did my uh, uh, dissertation at the Harkness Center for Dance Injuries, where they had a fully equipped biomechanics lab. And by then, um, my interest in ACL was uh, quite intense, and I had chosen this topic uh, for my dissertation. Uh, quite ironically, I tore my own ACL uh, three months before defending my dissertation, so I had some insight from the patient's perspective of, about how it feels uh, to have an ACL injury, and then just the journey of rehabilitation and uh, everything that followed that injury um, just reiterated uh, what I had known just in theory at this point about how devastating these injuries can be. Yeah, there's nothing like actually experiencing the injury to kind of even ignite more of a passion in you to study it. But like you, like you just said, there's nothing like getting that patient, that first person patient perspective to yep, really I, I could, add to what you already know. Yeah, I could have lived my life without having an ACL injury, I have to admit, uh, but yeah, it does give you a, a perspective uh, from the patient side. Um, now, ironically, you know, as I said, after, uh, as, as I had already uh, been finishing with my research, I had to uh, present my research on how to prevent uh, an ACL tear in three international conferences while I was quite acutely after my ACL tear and I had to limp to the podium to talk to them about that. So that that was quite ironic. Hopefully nobody asked me, everybody was polite enough to not ask me why I'm limping because I think that would have decreased my credibility. <laughs> oh my God, that's funny. Um, ironic sad, but kind of funny. I mean, now looking back on it, you can laugh about it, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, 11 years later, I can laugh about it. <laughs> oh man, that sucks. Um, okay. So talking about ACL injuries. So let's start from the beginning. Let's start with the, the etiology of ACL injuries. So I'll have you kind of take it. Um, yes. Well, you know, it's, uh, it, ACL tears can happen in a variety of ways. Um, most of the injuries happen during sports. Uh, there are injuries that happen during motor vehicle accidents or falling down the stairs, but the vast majority happen during sports. Um, female athletes are more, much more likely to suffer an ACL injury than male athletes. Uh, and now what predisposes an athlete to an ACL injury? Uh, it's a matter of debate. And that's what uh, I've been studying mainly in, in my group at the University of Sydney. Uh, but th there are a variety of factors that have been blamed for contributing to an ACL injury. Probably the ones that 
are the, the most interesting to discuss are what we refer to as biomechanical factors. So these are, uh, in layman terms, the, this is the way that an athlete is moving, the alignment of their body, their, the alignment of, especially of their lower extremity, when they performed uh, two specific athletic tasks. One is landing from a jump, uh, is the knee over the ankle, uh, or is the knee collapsing in, uh, in what we refer to in the, in, in the knock-knee position, uh, or, or what we refer to as knee valgus. Oh, uh, there, there are some other biomechanical factors too that have to do with uh, the imbalance between the front of the thigh, the quadriceps, uh, and the hamstrings, because uh, when the quadriceps are stronger than the hamstrings, this may be one of the uh, predisposing factors for an ACL injury. Uh, athletes who cannot control their trunk very well, so their their trunk and the because the, the the mass of the the majority of the mass in the human uh, body uh, is concentrated around the trunk. So even small uh, malalignments of the trunk can increase the forces around the knee and tear their ACL. Uh, and finally, what we refer to as the leg dominance theory, which is uh, athletes who have uh, 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 alignment issues in regards from side to side. So, for example, there are some athletes who consistently land from a jump uh, and one leg touches down first mm. or the other, while others demonstrate better alignment. Uh, so the two tasks that, that are more responsible for ACL injuries are landing from a jump and cutting, changing directions. So these are the two tasks. And uh, the majority of our research concentrates on how we can first identify these and, and measure these factors that are responsible for ACL tears, and two, can we prevent them? And when you're talking about cutting, are these injuries mainly in a high-speed cutting, or can they even happen in sort of a slower kind of pivot and move or cut and move? Well, uh, more likely to happen during high-speed cutting. Uh, you know, an athlete who... Uh, runs full speed and then changing direction, but they can happen at lower speeds too. Yeah, and when it, it, it's not like it's very often that a physical therapist, unless perhaps you're on the sidelines or you're working with higher level athletes, but it's not often that as a physical therapist working in an outpatient clinic that someone is coming into us with an ACL tear and they don't know it. So they haven't gone to the doctor yet. They haven't had any diagnostic testing. So uh -huh. let's say someone comes to you. What? How would you differentially diagnose an ACL tear? What things no, should absolutely. someone be looking for? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely correct, Karen. Uh, it, it's not as unless you you are a sports physical therapist and you work on on site with a team. Uh, physical therapists are less likely to, to be the first person to examine a patient who had a knee injury. Um, but basically, knee injuries, especially when the athlete reports a pop, uh, one of the first things that come to mind is, uh, is an ACL tear. Uh, it is one of the more serious knee injuries, along with the, what we refer to as multi-ligament injuries, which is an ACL plus the other ligaments and the structures around the knee. Um, 
and the history usually gives uh, quite good hints of, about uh, the possibility of the, the injury involving the ACL. Uh, as I said, a, a pop, uh, swelling, you know, the joint fills with blood pretty quickly after an ACL tear. Uh, the instability that the athletes perceives, uh, there have been uh, some anecdotes. Uh, and, and, you know, obviously, uh, these are quite unfortunate where athletes tore their ACL and they kept competing in, in the games, uh, you know, whenever there is a, a possibility that the ACL is torn, the athlete should be immediately removed from the game uh, and not allowed to compete anymore. Uh, and also what we refer to in physical therapy as the Lachman test, which is a test that is performed with the knee about 20 to 30 degrees of uh, flexion and the thigh is stabilized and the muscles are completely relaxed. This is very important to get a good sense of the knee, of, of the uh, integrity of the ligaments and the physical therapist is moving the tibia forward in respect to the femur. Uh, and we're looking for three things when we are performing this test. We're looking for pain, we're looking for uh, the amount of translation, how much does the knee move compared to the healthy knee, and we always uh, test the healthy knee first. But more importantly, we're looking for the end feel. Uh, in the intact ACL knee, uh, when you move the tibia all the way forward, you actually feel a, a very, uh, a quite abrupt stop that is provided to any further translation uh, from the intact ACL. This does not exist. There is a much softer uh, end feel when the ACL is torn. And when the patient, so now since you were a patient, can actually ask this question since you did tear mm -hmm. your ACL. Yes. What does that instability feel like? Oh, it's because horrible. If you've, <laughs> because if you've never had it, you know, it's obviously like you've had it. So mm -hmm. what does it feel like? How would you describe that to to your doctor, your physical therapist? Well, if you keep asking these questions, uh, Karen, I'm going to send you my therapist bill. <laughs> <laughs> Take me back 11 years ago. Um but yeah, it, it is a very uncomfortable, you know, all jokes aside, it is a very uncomfortable feeling. Um, because the knee is designed in a way that is, you know, inherently an unstable joint, especially when there is a tear of the lateral meniscus, as, as commonly there is one with ACL tears. And unfortunately, as, uh, as uh, was the case with me, um, then a lot of the uh, stability that is provided to the knee is gone. Uh, so now the the knee the knee joint feels unstable. It feels like it's going to collapse, even with activities of daily living. Um, it does feel that it rotates a lot because the the ACL is a secondary restraint to internal rotation. So I remember, you know, I was I was testing my knee to see how it feels, and you know, it's the combination of the scientist and the patient combined together, and you know, having. Uh, readily accessible and ACL deficient knee, so you want to test everything. Uh, and I do remember how I would feel that when my tibia uh, internally rot rotates, uh, it doesn't stop. Uh, uh. It does go a lot further than the other knee. Um, 
And then, you know, when you have these instability episodes where, again, the lateral TBL plateau subluxates anteriorly and internally, uh, pretty much replicating the same mechanism of the ACL tear, uh, then, you know, there is a lot of damage to the cartilage uh, in that area. Sometimes a bone bruise develops, and I did have quite a few of these episodes, uh, so I can tell you that it is a, a, a very, very uncomfortable and unpleasant mm. feeling uh, that you don't want to experience again. Yeah, yeah it's very sounds very creepy. Um, I don't, that's it. it okay, so let's say now um, the patient you're getting this patient uh, post ACL injury. They've been to a doctor. They've had an MRI. What are some important things on an MRI that maybe a PT should be aware of versus, oh, the ACL's torn. Okay, let's do some prehab before you have your surgery. So, for example, uh, the physical therapy should be looking for the ACL, for should be able to identify the ACL, be able to trace it and see whether it's intact or not. Um, that's not always possible in all MRIs, depending on quality and, and some other uh, technical details, but it frequently is possible to find the ACL and, uh, and see if it is intact or not. Of course, the condition of the menisci is very important um, after this type of injuries, and the physical therapy should be able to get a good sense of the quality of the meniscal tissue. Uh, but also uh, in the acute uh, stage, they should be looking for uh, uh, a bone bruise, so uh, especially around the lateral femoral condyle. Um, again, the research is quite conflicting on the importance of the bone bruise, but I think to be on the conservative side, and, uh, and, and especially considering that the jury is still out about the importance of the bone bruises, I think that those athletes who did suffer a bone bruise, they should be uh, certainly avoiding, you know, delaying any sort of return to anything uh, that, that involves impact around the knee um, until we have a better sense of what these injuries mean. And so let's say now you've, you're seeing the patient, they've have their surgery. Uh, a lot of patients oftentimes will come with a protocol from the physician, from the surgeon. Um, and, and, you know, you're kind of following through with this protocol. So as you're doing your therapy and the patient begins to get to improve, they're going through it. It's been a couple of weeks to a couple of months. And as a therapist, how important is it to sort of find the source or perhaps looking at it, like you said, from the etiology of it, the biomechanics of it, looking at the source of maybe why this happened in the first place versus just treating the deficits of range of motion, swelling, strength, that kind of stuff. Uh, in my opinion, Karen, this is one of the most important things. And unfortunately, this is one of the the areas where our profession, uh, our physical therapy is not doing such a great job at this point. Um, I mean, we do teach the students at least the principle uh, of trying to identify the source of any musculoskeletal problem and treating the source rather than the symptoms. Um, now, what that would translate into the ACL rehabilitation world means that uh, the 
physical therapist, uh, and, and this is probably not practical at the early stages of rehabilitation, just because that's when you concentrate on regaining the range of motion and you know making sure that there are no post-surgical complications, decreasing pain, and so on and so forth. But towards the later stages, and certainly before they return to sports phase of the rehabilitation, the physical therapist should do a very thorough assessment and try to at least guess uh, or guesstimate what was the reason that the athlete tore the ACL to start with. And if it was a non-contact injury, which means that it could potentially be a preventable injury, then it's quite likely that the reasons were biomechanical. So in this case, I would go back to the four theories that we discussed before. So did the does the athlete have the tendency to land with the knee collapsing medially in the not knee position too much? Uh, that is the ligament dominance theory that we refer to. Um, does the athlete utilize uh, a, a straight knee landing uh, uh, strategy or the hamstrings are weaker and not firing as well as the quadriceps? So that's the quadriceps dominance theory. If that is present, it needs to be rectified. Uh, does the athlete have issues with trunk control uh, that then would increase the forces around the knee? Uh, or does the athlete have the side-to-side the, the -side asymmetry uh, or a combination of those? Actually, a paper that we uh, did recently at the Medicine, Science and Sports and Exercise showed that uh, about 40% of female athletes have no uh, uh, none of these biomechanical deficits, but the remaining 60% have one or a combination of those. And that is a quite important finding. Um, and, and again, you know, keep also in mind that somebody who injured their ACL for the first time, um, they are at a much, much higher risk of re-injuring either the same ACL uh, that has been reconstructed or the opposite ACL. Uh, so these are definitely the athletes who need a very thorough assessment. And there are exercises, and we have uh, described those in the paper that we have published. There are specific exercises that would rectify uh, each one of these uh, biomechanical deficits, or, or you know, at least they would ameliorate the existence of these deficits. So I do think that um, even though you know it's relatively easy to rehabilitate somebody after uh, an ACL reconstruction in terms of uh, regaining strength and range of motion and even some proprioception and getting them ready for sports, I would strongly argue that we are providing a disservice to these patients if we don't take it a step further and try to identify the deficits, the biomechanical deficits that uh, would potentially predispose them to an ACL tear and try to rectify those and give them a list of exercises that, you know, some of these injury prevention programs that have been developed, they're very, they're both very effective, but also uh, quite easy to perform instead of a standard static stretching, which, you know, there is some research to demonstrate that it doesn't do much to prevent injuries. Um, the FIFA 11 Plus, for example, is an excellent program for soccer that has been developed. Um, again, the evidence about its effectiveness is, is quite mixed, but largely positive at this point. Uh, certainly better than a traditional stretching uh, uh, routine. Um, so that is definitely something that I would encourage all physical therapists who see patients either at risk for an ACL injury or who already had an ACL tear uh, to consider and screen their athletes. Uh, there are some relatively easy tests. And now with the available, one of the good things about 
the ubiquity of uh, cameras on smartphones and other devices is that you can film those athletes performing a landing pass, for example, from the front and from the side, and you can you know slow down the video and uh, and use some free freeware uh, to calculate the angles uh, if it is not clear if they have any of those deficits, and then and then take it from there, prescribe the exercises, and and uh, just move on. Yeah, and, and I think it's important, and I'm glad that you noted that um, we also have to be aware that this person, that most people have another knee. Exactly, yes. You know? Um, and, and if it happened on one knee, then yeah, odds are there's a, a greater chance it could happen on the other one. And so when you're prescribing these exercises, make sure you're prescribing it on both sides. And I think a lot of times PTs forget that. I know I have in the past. I mean, I don't... Mm -hmm know anyone who would say that they have never forgotten that, you know? Yeah, and, and especially at this population, it's very uh, important to, to um, take that extra step um, because not only there are a much higher risk of tearing the ACL either the same or the other knee, uh, but just the fact that they suffered an ACL tear uh, skyrockets the possibility that they're going to get uh, premature post-traumatic osteoarthritis, uh, which is another, and then, you know, going back probably to the original question that you asked me why I'm interested in ACL tears, is that not only the way they happen and the population that they happen in this very, you know, highly athletic population, sometimes in the teenage years or in their early 20s, uh, but also what it means for the life, uh, because, you know, you have an athlete with an ACL tear at age 16, who develops osteoarthritis, because commonly that happens within the next 10 to 15 years, sometimes 18 years. Um, and what do you do with uh, somebody who's in their mid-30s and they have uh, you know, uh, post-traumatic osteoarthritis at this point, while well, they're supposed to be in the you know, uh, most productive years? Uh, and there are not many good choices because they're too young for a total knee replacement. Mm -hmm. um, and they are, and the quality of life, though, is somebody of a much older, their knee-related quality of life is equivalent to somebody who's 70 or 80 years old. Um, so that's why, you know, in our laboratory, we're very passionate about uh, preventing those injuries uh, because once they happen, you know, there are things we can do to prevent it from getting worse or getting another injury, but uh, just the fact that... Uh, and, and, you know, take that from somebody who already had this injury, right? Mm -hmm. uh, just the fact that it happens, uh, it really can be a life-defining uh, event. Yeah, and because at 30, 40 years old, you don't want to even think about having a total knee replacement. Now, That's are true. there things like partial knee replacements or are there any different injectables or things like that you know you hear Kobe Bryant goes to Germany for some sort of injectables into his knee um, mm. are there to your knowledge and and anything uh, that's been studied that can help this population aside um, from aside from having a total knee replacement in terms of preventing osteoarthritis? Um, not even pre well yeah I guess in terms of preventing or perhaps prolonging the inevitable. Yeah, replacement? well, I mean, the short answer is no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there is uh, there isn't anything that has been proven to do that. There are some promising techniques. You know, there is PRP that has mm -hmm. received a lot of uh, publicity lately. Uh, yes, there there is there are athletes. Uh, they uh, 
uh, have tried different things. Oops. Um, but in terms of the research evidence around that, there is very little uh, to recommend that. Uh, th there are some of the uh, injections that orthopedic uh, surgeons perform in osteoarthritic knees, um, and they tend to have a rather temporary effect. Uh, but that is more in terms of pain and increasing function, but in terms of reversing or even slowing down the uh, uh, development of osteoarthritis, there's nothing at this point that has definitively been demonstrated that it would work. Um, but, you know, I mean, hopefully there is a lot of research around this area uh, and, and hopefully something will come up soon because these athletes really need it. Yeah. Um, but until then, you know, prevention is probably the best thing. Prevention. Now, one thing that you mentioned, so I, I think that a lot of PTs get the hamstring versus quad uh, ratio as perhaps being a factor in predisposing someone to an ACL injury. But can we talk about the trunk control aspect? Because I think that's mm -hmm. something that a lot of people don't think about. So how does trunk control play into an ACL injury? Uh, so, you know, consider the athlete who is landing, let's say, on the right leg, because in a lot of sports, that's what you have to do. Uh, and instead of keeping the center of mass, uh, more or less, uh, you know, very close to the center of the knee, they lean over to the right side too much. Um, and, uh, you know, that's the other great thing about cameras being everywhere, that now we have a very large collection of ACL tears at the moment that they're happening. Um so, you know, we can we can try to reconstruct those injuries and the factor behind those injuries. So we commonly see the athletes who lean too far on the landing on the, on the side of the landing uh, leg uh, that they uh, that increases the torque around the knee. So increases what we refer to as the knee valgus torque uh, and the knee is more likely to collapse inwards and increase the forces, the compression forces on the lateral side of the knee. So that is, you know, the mechanism of injury. You know, some athletes just have more tendency to do that for a variety of reasons. It could be weakness or it could be proprioception of the trunk or other reasons. Uh, and then, but that is, that can be trained. Uh, you know, you simply, sometimes it's as simple as putting the athlete to perform, to them, first of all, you have to tell them what they're doing, you know, wrong, uh, quotes on quotes, uh, and try to give them some visual feedback about how to do that better. Um, and if the problem is a weak gluteus medius on the right side, then obviously, you know, any PT would know how to fix that. Uh, but, you know, this visual feedback and, and then this functional training uh, is also very effective if it's done consistently. Uh, yeah. Sometimes, you know, it's, it's training the people, the other athletes that they uh, train together in the team about the four common mistakes that we described earlier. And when they identify them on, on their fellow athletes, try to give them some feedback to correct that. Um, so, yeah, there are some pretty easy and effective uh, uh, exercises that can be done in order to decrease uh, the, these biomechanical deficits. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. And now, you know, like you keep saying, it's it's all about sort of that injury prevention. So mm -hmm. when does this injury prevention training start? When should this start? If you're having adolescent girls being injured, how, how do you weave this into an already busy life of a kid mm -hmm. or, or yeah. an adult? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You see, and th that has been the biggest challenge uh, uh, of, 
in our area uh, in regards to translating the research that we do in this rather sanitized environment where you take teams that are you know very keen to uh, uh, to, to try something new, then you tell them, okay, you know, one hour per week or two hours per week, you're going to do this injury prevention program. Um, as I said, you know, these injury prevention programs tend to be quite effective, yet they don't have good uptake for all these reasons that coaches don't want, you know, to quote unquote waste this time. Because, you know, again, think if you think about this in terms of the, what do they get uh, from these injury prevention programs, you have to train almost 100 athletes. Uh, to prevent one ACL injury per year. So it's still a quite rare injury. Uh, over the years, obviously, the numbers are a lot better in that respect. Um, so that's why the programs that have been developed, they're not in addition to the other training that they do, but they are replacing the warm-up that they do. And, and that's what the uh, FIFA 11, uh, 11 Plus uh, has been doing. And that's why it has been quite effective, quite, quite successful in being implemented, especially in certain countries like the Scandinavian countries. Um, so the athlete does a 10-minute warm-up, uh, and they would have to do that either way, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so they have the choice of doing something that is ineffective, like static stretching, or they have the choice of doing something that is probably a little bit more fun uh, and also effective. And it's effective in two ways. One is in increasing their performance, so the same injury prevention programs and the same exercises that prevent the injuries, they are also good at making athletes run faster or jump higher or cut mm -hmm. faster and uh, have a competitive advantage over their opponents. Um, now, the, the next step, and that's something that we do have, uh, one of my uh, PhD students, David Hillard, is uh, adapting these injury prevention programs uh, in Australia in netball, which is a sport that is not very popular in, in other parts What's of the called? world. Uh, called netball oh is that where is that like volleyball but use your feet uh it's like basketball it's, it's oh. more like basketball but there are some differences in the rules um there are very few countries in the world that compete in this sport but just because of its nature that it's like basketball but once you get the ball you have to stop so it you know it has these sudden stops uh so it does have a high and it's played predominantly by females. So it does have a very high rate of ACL injuries. Uh, but the challenge that we have is to adapt uh, these exercises in a sport-specific nature. So there is the FIFA 11 Plus uh, for soccer. Uh, David uh, is trying to uh, do some research around a similar program that has been developed by Alana Antcliffe, the, the Netball Australia uh, physiotherapist. Uh, uh, and and uh, that has been, you know, a netball-specific version of these injury prevention programs. So I do think that the next step for us is to try to make these injury prevention programs as sport-specific as possible. Um, and, and, you know, going back to, to your question, you know, these need to be, these pretty much need to be part of the regular routine that the athletes need to do. That's why we're trying to make them, you know, quite practical in terms of, uh, using them either before or after the, the training session that they do or in sometimes both before and after as a, as a warm-up and as a cool-down. Um, and they should be done as often as possible, you know, with a very some research that has uh, been coming out this year uh, uh, in respect to how long does this uh, do, do the positive effects of these injury prevention programs last. Uh, 
And, uh, and again, you know, that's a relatively new area of research, but at the moment it looks like that it has to be repeated every year because some of the more intense injury prevention programs, they last about six weeks. So it has been recommended that they are, uh, they are part of the preseason training. Uh, so certainly, you know, at a minimum, they should be done at the beginning of each season uh, or if they are the shorter versions of the 10 minute uh, warm ups, they should be done, you know, pretty much consistently every week. And every so these sort of let's say we're taking these 10 minute uh, warm ups. Are they done before every practice and every game year round? I mean, is that an ideal situation? Yes, yes, that okay. that would be. You know, every any time you would need a warm up, you would do this instead of anything else. Okay, well, I mean, at least that makes sense and it fits into the schedule automatically. Mm -hmm. So it just becomes, like you said, instead of doing some static stretching or maybe just some jogging around, mm -hmm. you're doing a more regimented prevention program before each practice and game. That makes sense. That's and that's exactly the idea. Um, yeah, no, that, that makes sense because to say, like you said, if you say to someone, I want you to do this program an hour twice a week every week, it may be hard to get a buy-in. Yeah, changing human behavior and habits is the most difficult thing we can oh, do. Oh, so. my God. <laughs> Absolutely. Are you kidding me? Absolutely. Absolutely, especially when there's so many other things that you could possibly be doing, right? Exactly, right. And when you're a teenager, just think how much harder that is when you're a teenager. Yeah, you have the choice of playing Pokemon Go. You have the choice of playing Pokemon Go. You have the choice of, I don't know, hanging out with your friends or whatever. Like, But maybe someone can incorporate Pokemon injury prevention with Pokemon Go. <laughs> I think you're on to something, uh, See? Karen. I, there are some rehab hospitals using it for kids. So, oh, you know, really? yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So maybe they can, you know, incorporate some sort of, I don't know, some sort of Pokemon Go FIFA Plus integration. Um, okay, so, you know, we've kind of talked about the etiology, the importance of really getting to the source versus just treating the symptoms. And understandably, that's later on in the rehab process. I yes. mean, we don't expect you to be trying to figure out the source of someone's ACL in initial injury when they're a couple of weeks post-op. That doesn't even make any sense. Um, exactly. But it is important at this stage to get a, as accurate a, a, of a description as you can in terms of the mechanism of the injury. Of the injury, yes. So again, really listening to the patient, taking down that their history as best they can remember. And maybe as the PT, it might even behoove you to ask if anyone has a video of it. Oh, yeah, yes. That's always a great question, yes. Right? Because everybody's taking videos all the time. Um, so if someone has a video of it, that would also be a great way for you to start kind of putting that thinking cap on and saying, okay, maybe later on with this person, I'm going to want to look at X, Y, and Z on both sides as they uh -huh. start to progress through to see if this was how this happened, whether it be, you know, a, a valgus landing or lack of trunk control or a straight leg landing or a cut or a pivot. I think it's important to, to kind of, because sometimes when people come in, they're like, how did this happen? Like, I don't know. Right. Just popped. Yeah. Just, I don't know. I came down. I don't know what happened. I just heard a pop. And you hear that a lot, you know? Yes. 
So I think it's it, it, there it can be a little tricky. Now, when someone is towards the end of their rehab and they're ready to go back to sport, uh -huh. what do you use to screen them to see if they are ready for to go back to sport? I mean, I was at a conference last year and Chris Powers was speaking uh -huh. from USC and he was developing like a screening tool for a return to sport that did involve cutting and and fast change of direction. Um, now uh -huh. he also has force plates and you know, he's got what, like a million dollar uh, gym out there, um, uh -huh. research facilities. So let's say you're the average PT who doesn't have force plates and doesn't have all this stuff t available to them. What do you recommend they use to screen these patients to see if they're ready to return to sport? Uh, yes, well, as you said, there, there is the high-tech solution uh, and, you know, obviously not everybody has actually probably very few people have access to that. But th there, there have been many other uh, what I would call, you know, low-tech solutions. Um, a paper that was published by Greg Myers, I think, uh, I, I believe that was at JSPT a number of years ago. I think that was a very reasonable and uh, logical and realistic approach uh, to return to sports. Um, again, you know, you want to, cons I mean, nothing that the, the average PT would not intuitively understand there, but you want to make sure that there is a good side-to-side -side symmetry. Uh, in terms of strength, especially in terms of the quadriceps, but also the hamstrings, uh, particularly if they had an, a hamstring graft. Um, we used to think that 80 to 85 percent uh, is good enough. Uh, recent research has demonstrated uh, that actually that should probably go up to 90 percent at this point. Um, <clears throat> And, you know, a lot of uh, uh, balance and proprioception tests uh, that, that uh, you know, have been uh, around for quite some time. Um, there was a paper I, uh, I have, and I don't remember the details about that because uh, it, it was published quite recently. And the name of the author, the name of the author, actually, he's a fellow Greek, uh, Polyvius Kirichis, the last... Whoa, you'll have to email that to me and I'll put it up in the show notes. Yes, yes. Uh, the last name is K-Y-R-I-T-S-I-S -S at B-J-S-M. Um, and, you know, he published this paper just, I think it's still in press. It hasn't been completely published in, in print yet. Uh, and that is a paper that he did in collaboration with Raul Barr. Um, and he has developed six criteria. Uh, and he has demonstrated that athletes who do not meet the discharge criteria, uh, these six dis discharge criteria, they are four times greater risk of sustaining an ACL injury. Um, so, you know, these, these tests were the running t-test which is quite commonly used in uh in sports there and isokinetic testing and again you know if you don't have access to an isokinetic device uh you know any other ways of measuring strength should be fine but probably more importantly the the uh hop test so there is the single hop mm -hmm. the triple hop the triple crossover hop test that are commonly used and again you're looking for symmetries from side to side 
Um, we have done some work with my collaborators in Greece, so with uh, Sofia Xerja and uh, Professor Gergulis laboratory, uh, where we have also demonstrated that the, the deficits uh, after in, in the single hop test resist for uh, a really long time, at least nine to 12 months after uh, the uh, ACL reconstruction. Uh, but probably the other thing that I need to highlight here, because that is relatively new, uh, and you know, um, I guess we are showing my age here, but I remember when I first started practicing, there was this uh, competition basically from PTs to return the athlete after an ACL reconstruction to sports as quickly as possible. I remember back then there were some, you know, cases that some athletes have received a lot of publicity because they return within three and a half or four months. What? Uh, that, yeah, that, wow. that, that is a, we do know now that this is a horrible idea. <laughs> then I think the six month became more or less like the limit. Uh, what we know now though, and there is more and more research that is coming out, is that uh, the nine months should be, nobody should be returning to sport, or I should say, you know, Almost nobody should be returning to sports before nine months after an ACL reconstruction. The knee will feel okay, especially if they had you know, some allograft like uh, that, 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 the, the, uh, there's no uh, donor side morbidity. Um, but it's the job and it's a difficult job. It's the job of the PT to discourage and convince the athlete to not return to sports earlier than nine months after the ACL reconstruction. And and that it returning greater than or before nine months, is that just exponentially increase the likelihood of, of re injury? Exactly. Exactly. Most of the injuries happen, you know, within the first year after the reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now, you know, we're looking at nine months as the minimum of allowing athletes to return to sports. Uh, and some people are even talking for a year after the, the reconstruction, you know, uh, of return to sports. Wow. And, and I know you mentioned briefly about, um, you know, people can have ACL reconstructions with different donors, right? It could be a hamstring. It could be a patellar tendon. Um, or, or it could be from a cadaver. So are there, what are the pros and cons to those? And I would think, you know, if you're doing with a hamstring, like we mentioned before, there's that hamstring to quad ratio. So taking the grasp from the hamstring, does that then further decrease the strength of the hamstring post-surgically? Yes, uh, yes, it does. Uh, and there is some research. Well, actually, to take it a step back, I in addition to the uh, to the graphs you mentioned, uh, Karen, there's also, and, and I didn't know that until recently, you know, when I moved to Sydney from New York and I started working with uh, Dr. Pinzewski's group there, is that they're using uh, as the, the hamstrings of the parent uh, in the very young athletes. Uh, and, and we have a, a, uh, Emma Fitzgibbon is one of my PhD students who is doing some really exciting research uh, in this area to see how the uh, athletes who had the uh, hamstring graft from the parents, how are they doing in the long term. Uh, so hopefully next year we'll have the opportunity to present those results. Um, so yes, there, there are advantages and disadvantages for each one of these graphs. Um, the patellar tendon is the one that has been around for the longest time. Um, now, interestingly, there is a wide geographical variation. Uh, so in Europe, they do primarily 
hamstring graft reconstructions. The same in Australia, I should say, uh, although they, there is a little bit more variability there, but uh, hamstring uh, grafts are by far the most common. Um, we also have some uh, surgeons that are using LRs, which is a synthetic graft that uh, kind of works as a scaffold for the ACL to, and they, they wrap the ACL around that. Um, we don't see many of those, but, but uh, there are uh, some orthopedic surgeons who perform the surgery. Uh, and of course, the allografts, which is uh, taken from a cadaver, as you said. Um, now, the advantage of the allograft is that uh, obviously they don't have to cut the athlete open in another area and borrow graft from that area, which obviously is more painful and it creates some of the other issues that you mentioned, uh, including uh, strength deficits. If it's taken from the hamstrings, there is a knee flexion strength deficit. If it's taken from the uh, patella tendon, there is a knee extension strength deficit that actually can persist for decades after the uh, reconstruction. Um, we did some research with uh, uh, Dr. Kutras in uh, Thessaloniki in, in Greece, and actually we are, I'm, I'm on my sabbatical right now, so we're doing the second stage of this project. Uh, last year, we have uh, demonstrated that if the if strength is measured, what we, we refer to in the more uh, biomechanically neutral position, so if they if the hip is at zero degrees close to neutral and you measure the strength of or knee flexion, then there is a much larger deficit. Uh, I shouldn't say much larger, but somewhat larger deficit that uh, would bring more, most athletes below the 85%, you know, symmetry cutoff that we're using for return to sport. And this is, um, this is versus just testing it in seated where the hip is exactly flexed at 90 right. Yeah, right. which is the easiest position of and course. the more commonly used, uh, but not very functional because the hip is flexed at about ninety degrees. You mean and you don't run? You don't run with your hip at ninety degrees? Yeah, well, no, <laughs> not most people, <laughs> depending on the sport, I guess. But um, maybe sumo wrestlers would have a, and that would be the right position to uh, test knee flexion strength. But for practically all other athletes, uh, and more neutral position of the hip would be more appropriate. Uh, we are doing a, the second part of the study now, and we hopefully next year we'll have some answers about whether we can decrease these uh, strength deficits. Um, now, in terms of what is the best graft, which is commonly what, uh, you know, very uh, important question that we're asked by our patients, uh, obviously the best graft will have to be something that the orthopedic surgeon needs to have very good experience with. Uh, that is the number one criterion. Uh, it depends on many other factors, including gender, um, age, uh, the, the and the aspirations of the athlete to go back to what level of competition. So somebody who wants, actually they did a research study among orthopedic surgeons, and uh, they asked them, uh, if you were going to do an ACL reconstruction, the professional athlete, what graft would you use? And most of them answered, and that was in the United States where the patella tendon is more popular than other parts of the world. Most of them, and actually the vast majority of them answered the patella tendon. Um, so in many parts of the world, um, probably that's still the case in New York, they do believe that the patella tendon is still the gold standard. Um, it does provide, has advantages, including faster healing uh, at the ends of the graft as you have a uh, bone-on-bone healing, um, and, but it, it is the 
quite painful procedure. Uh, athletes commonly have patellofemoral pain mm -hmm. uh, for a long time after the ACL reconstruction. They have trouble with kneeling and pain with kneeling, um, but, but it is a quite stable graft. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I think that's so interesting that um, there's such wide variations geographically. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, but I mean, I guess that makes sense. And and I think your answer of whatever the doctor has good success with and mm -hmm. depending on what you plan to do in the future are great recommendations. So if someone asks you as the PT, I think that's a really great answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're kind of running short on time, but before we sign off, is there anything about ACLs that we didn't talk about? Or are there some parting thoughts you would like to leave the listeners with? Um, well, I think we, we touched upon the, the major uh, research uh, findings of the last decade uh, to a large extent. Um, I guess one thing that maybe, uh, you know, maybe we should finish in a more optimistic tone, you know, we have been talking to you about neosteoarthritis and how if you tear your ACL, you know, you're more likely to tear the other ACL. But there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of optimism out there in terms of uh, the research, the scientific community having a much better understanding in the last decade about what causes the ACL injuries, but also technology evolving very rapidly. We talked a little bit about videos uh, being more available of actual ACL tears or using uh, smartphone cameras to assess your patients or your athletes if you work out with the team uh, and, and try to identify the biomechanical deficits. There is a lot of technology in terms of wearable sensors that is becoming more and more mainstream and more uh, affordable at this point. So I do uh, think that the last five to 10 years uh, we're going to see a lot of these wearable devices becoming better and better and better and uh, athletes will be able to uh, put them on during practice and that will give a uh, wealth of information to uh, the clinicians, to the PTs uh, about who, what athlete may be at risk and, and I believe that is going to help a lot with preventing those injuries and with uh, effectively training athletes uh, to in the right way so we, these injuries can be uh, prevented. Um, so yeah, my advice to to PTs would be you know become familiar with some of the newer technologies of these you know some of these wearable sensors because um, I do think that in the next decade or so we'll have to we'll, we'll have to develop the expertise in order to be the profession that actually understands the data that comes out of that. Um, and, and full disclosure here, you know, with a PhD in biomechanics, that's an easy advice for me to give. Um, but, you know, I really think that uh, since we are the profession of pathokinesiology, the profession that uh, identifies problems with motion and fixes them, then we should uh, be the ones who take the lead in understanding this uh, technology and utilizing it in ways that can be uh, beneficial for the athletes. Yeah, very well said. And I had a conversation a couple of months ago with Tim Gabbett. He's a fellow Australian. Well, not that you're an Australian, but you, you're there now. Um, but he's an Australian. And when he, uh, he uses the wearable technology a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, granted, he's working with a lot of professional teams. But the amount of information that you can get from these wearables is kind of unbelievable. 
Yes, yes. And and you're yeah, right. Physical therapy it behooves us physical therapists to really harness this technology and uh-huh. and understand not just where to put the wearables on someone, but understand the data that you're getting from it. Exactly, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's excellent advice. Um, so anyway, we are kind of running out of time, although I feel like we could probably talk for longer, although uh, full disclosure, Evangelist and I have known each other for, what, 15 years? Oh, I would say 20. It's not 20. <laughs> At least 18. <laughs> so it's been a while, so we could probably go on for, for quite a long time. I don't know that it would be about ACLs, but it would probably be entertaining. But I will I will stop it here. So if people want to find out more about you, uh, we, we will have a link uh, in the show notes. So if you go to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com, We'll have a link to uh, Evangelist's page at the University of Sydney. Um, but are you on social media? Are there other ways that people can kind of follow your work? Uh, yes, I have a Twitter account that is not very active. Uh, yeah, and then social media. I'm on Facebook, um, which is a combination of personal stuff as well as uh, research. Uh, we do have, and, and maybe uh, Claire Hiller spoke about that, but on Facebook we have a dance research uh, uh, collaborative uh, page uh, and a lot of you know things are there but but actually the University of Sydney is doing an excellent job in updating every time we publish something or every time there is uh, something exciting coming out updating my web page with uh, new material there so yeah if any of your listeners have any questions you know feel free to go to the University of Sydney uh, web page and type in Evangelos Papas and and our from your show, as you said, you're going to put a direct yeah. link. My uh, email is there. Feel free to email me. I'm, I'm on sabbatical at this moment, so I'm, you know, not checking them uh, obsessively every second, but I do check them quite regularly. And, uh, you know, if, if any reader has any questions, I'll be happy to uh, answer those. And what is your handle on Twitter? Uh, E.V. Papas, E-V-P-A-P-P-A-S. Great. All right. So you can follow Evangelos to get more updates um, and go to his webpage at the University of Sydney. That's all at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And again, that's E.V. Pappas, at E.V. Pappas on Twitter. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, this was great. And and also, I interviewed Evangelos a couple of years ago, so you can always go back in the archives oh, and you can oh, listen I think to it that was 2006. <laughs> it was not 2000. I wasn't even doing this in 2006. 2007, then. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was an honor, always an honor to be in your in uh, to be talking to you, Karen. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully as new data comes out to come back and uh, absolutely buy some of the things that we said today, uh, update some of the things that uh, we didn't say today, and uh, hopefully provide more answers. So thank you very much. It was a big honor of, for having me here, and um, you know, hopefully I'll, I'll be back soon. Yeah, I hope. Well, I hope so. And everybody, thank you so much for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, at Karen Litzy NYC, and, or you can go to facebook.com slash healthywealthysmart. And thank you for listening. Have a great week, and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart.